So today we will continue with one of the, I mean this in no disrespectful ways of the Lord, one of the craziest passages in scripture in the New Testament. We're going to keep looking at this and from it we're going to keep trying to learn about the church. We don't have a situation that this passage describes as far as I know. I've not heard of many churches that do. Uh, Paul hadn't heard of many churches that do as the passage explains. It was a crazy situation for Paul as he talks about it. But there's a lot that we can learn about what a church is and what a church is supposed to do from a passage like this. And that's where I just really want to to get all the nutrients out of it today. And like I said, we won't have the headings necessarily clear, but I'll try to make sure it's clear where we're going. So without further ado, I'm going to I'm going to read you guys 1 Corinthians 5. That's where we are. 1 Corinthians 5. If you want to flip there, you can. If you don't, Rebecca's back there, man in the station, and we've got the verses going up there for you guys as well. So We're going to read 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to cover most of the second half because we covered most of the first half last week. This is the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate With sexually immoral people. Not at all. Meaning. The sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy. Or the swindler. Or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you. Not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty. Of sexual immorality. Or greed. Or is an idolater. A reviler drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one for what do i have to do with judging outsiders is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge god judges those outside purge the evil person from among you this is the word of the lord would you pray with me lord please help me Help me to preach your word honorably. I am a sinner. Always needing your grace and mercy. And please, Lord, in your grace and mercy, because of your grace and mercy, meet your precious people today with grace and mercy from this word. Lord, take your Holy Spirit and send him with your word. Don't just send your word. Send your spirit with your word into our hearts to make this word meaningful to us this morning. Lord, do all that we've been hoping, all that we've been depending, all that we've been praying, Lord, as we seek to seek you as a church family. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My brother-in-law, Dave, I don't know if he's going to listen to this, but he, he has been listening to like tons of messages all the time. Like he listens to David Platt and Tim Keller, and he listens to local churches in his area. Like he listens to, I, I think the last time we were talking, he talked about listening to like 15 messages a week, something crazy like that. He's just been, he's just been drinking in sermons. And he listens to our church sermons. Like he's listened to, uh, you know, Matt Maker when he's preached. He's listened to Kurt. Uh, he's listened to Ken. He's listened to some of the stuff I've preached. And, uh, and my brother-in-law, Dave, if you are listening to this, I really kind of think this about you. He's kind of, I think David's a genius, like I do. He's just intellectually gifted guy. He's really, really bright. And he loves the Lord deeply. And I say that to encourage you guys, because what he said to me really encouraged me. He said to me a couple weeks ago, he took me aside, and he said, Albert, God is doing something in your church. I, I listen to a lot of messages. He wasn't talking about my messages. He was talking about what he's hearing from all these different people. And I, he said, I don't hear going on in a lot of churches what I hear coming through the messages in your church. I just really feel like God is really talking to your church. He's really ministering to you guys personally. And, and I feel that way too. Um, Kim's word today, Kim has just been, by God's grace, a fountain of God's grace to us. And the, the many prophecies she's given that have really aligned, I feel like, with the place and time he's brought our church. Many of you guys were part of the solemn assembly a few weeks ago. And, and, and long before we entered the solemn assembly, though, we chose this book, 1 Corinthians, to walk through. And I believe the Lord is doing something bigger than, than just those, those weeks of the solemn assembly. He's doing something that, that's continuing through even the book that we're journeying through. I believe the Lord would say the blessing point is part of a larger process that he's calling our church through right now. Um, a lot of it's painful. A lot of it's trying. But I really do believe that the Lord is calling us right now to help us. He's helping us to remember what we're called to be as a church. He's calling us to remember what we're called to be as as a church. He's calling us to remember the ancient paths that I believe the scripture talks about. Seek the ancient pathways, not rocket science stuff, but the basic foundations of what it means to be a church family. And he's calling us to look at those things and to repent back to those things. I feel that way as a leadership team. I feel that way individually in my own life. He's calling us to see from where we have strayed and fallen. He's calling us to come back to him. And he's calling us to recommit. I believe he's calling us to recommit to those pathways. And in doing so to recommit to each other as a church family. And I hope that in the coming weeks we'll be able as an elder team and with you guys together to keep pressing into that. I don't think it's a big, kind of what Kim was saying at the Prophecy Mike today. We didn't talk. It was exactly what I was feeling. I don't think it's a big overnight thing that we're just going to get everything done. I feel like it's going to be a long process. And it's going to be the Lord taking us through, rebuilding us. You know, Hadrian, Hadrian the emperor was uh, watching Rome burn. He was one of these emperor guys. I'm sure he was a terrible guy, but a lot of them did a lot of big stuff. Like Hadrian built a wall out in England. Uh, so you go to England, you can see Hadrian's wall because he had his guys so building out all the way out to the British Isles. But he was watching Rome burn, as I guess Rome burned a lot. And um, one of the historians read this conversation between Hadrian and some people that were freaking out about Rome burning down. And they said, how are we going to build Rome? And Hadrian said, we are going to build Rome brick by brick. Brick by brick. And, and I believe that for us as a church family, that we're going to build brick by brick. We're going to rebuild little by little, step by step, person by person, heart by heart. If we are, um, depending on the Lord and seeking him, not perfectly, imperfectly, but sincerely, and I believe that that's what he's going to be doing. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's going to be all in one fell swoop. 
So I think that what we're looking at today is part of that process. We're looking at what a church that's going crazy (laughs) is being called to in basic ways. And last week, we reviewed a couple of those basic ways. We looked at this passage, if you guys remember, and we tried to pull from it these couple of big basic ideas that a church is a bride. A church is a bride. Of course, the entire church in the world is the bride of Christ. And each local expression is to be an expression of that bride. So this local church is a bride. And a key feature of that is the beauty that the husband sees in the bride. And of course, because it's God and he's not superficial, outward beauty is a symbol of the inner beauty that he, he longs to see in every one of his creatures. And that any man who's smart would be seeking to uphold and build and, and adore in his wife is that inner beauty. And so... Jesus, the husband, is looking for the inner beauty of holiness in his bride. We talked about the purity that this passage is saying. God wants a pure bride. He wants us to be pure. He's calling us back to that. The beauty of holiness. That is what arouses God's affection and excitement. This passage teaches us how serious God is about our purity and our love for him. When Paul said back in Ephesians 5 that Christ washed us so that it would be spotless, blameless for him. Not just moral, but blameless for him. And it's a reflection of the commitment he's made to his bride that he would die to make it so. And he would continue to intercede the father's hand to make it so. The church is a bride. We talked about the church as a body. We see in this passage this very serious calling the church has to be the body of Christ. And I don't mean when you hear body of Christ, you think of a church. No, think of a body, hands, feet, legs, toes. Think of the voice saying, speaking, acting, and doing what Christ wants said, spoken, and done on earth. We really are to be the voice of Jesus in each other's lives. Even to the point of saying to the rebelling believer in this passage, your soul is in grave danger. In the name of Jesus, we hand you over to Satan's influence so that you might be smitten and turn back to Christ and not lost forever. And so, just as Jesus saves, his body is a means of saving, right? We know this is in an ultimate sense, but Paul was not ashamed to say, by God's grace, I might save some. Or to tell Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so, God is the ultimate source of salvation. Me and Ryan talked about this on the phone yesterday. God is the ultimate source of salvation, but he uses instruments. He uses you to tell your kids the gospel, and he saves through you, right? And so, in the same way... Because Jesus saves, his body saves. And so we talked about last week how this was an incredible cosmic situation going on. This weird story is really about the church moving into a man who's rebelling into his life and keeping him from going to hell. Now God decreed before the world was made that this man would not go to hell. But God also decided he was going to use the church in this man's life as one of the means to keep this man from falling away, so that his eternal security was accomplished through the church's work. That's why Paul says, hand this man over to Satan, so that his body, his flesh might be destroyed. His inner attitude of hating God, rebelling against God, would be just smitten. And his soul would be saved on the day of salvation. That's this huge responsibility of a local church. It's a huge responsibility of being a church family is that you would participate in something like this to keep this man from going to hell. 
So today we're going to continue back end of our passage, looking to see again more ways the church is a body and a bride and ending with this final picture of another aspect of what the church is called to be a light. The church is called to be the bride of Christ. The church is called to be the body of Christ. And the church is called to be the light of the world. And hopefully we'll see that in this passage as we go along. So coming back to verse seven, Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, we're just backing up a few verses to what we finished with last week to remember this appeal that Paul makes that's so important at the outset of a passage like this, or really anything in Scripture. Remember this allusion, if you were here last week, to the, to the exodus, to the, the time when Moses was leading the Jews out of Egypt and slavery. And they were commanded, the Jews at the exodus, to make unleavened bread. Remember we talked about that? Because leavened bread took time, took a week or so to rise. And they didn't have time to let the leaven rise. And so leaven became a symbol of getting out of Egypt, of moving away from your old life and moving into the new life. Or unleavened bread did, right? So you can kind of do the math on it. Leaven becomes to look like this symbol. If you're not going to, if you're not going to eat unleavened bread, you're going to, you're going to wait. You're going to let the leaven rise. You're going to hang out and not move away from your old life. You're going to take your time getting out of Egypt. Leaven becomes a symbol of sin. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The Passover, the lamb has been slaughtered. The doors have been coated with the blood over your doorposts. Get out. Get out of Egypt. What are you doing hanging around? Paul says, in effect, using this metaphor, what are you doing letting this guy continue this way without taking action? This man is going to wreck your church. He's going to infect it with his sin. And he is going to wreck himself. Take action. Now, this isn't something that just happened yesterday. Paul's already written them another letter about this. This has been going on for quite some time. But notice again what Paul says. Look at the passage. He says, purify your church by expelling this man that you may be a new lump. Listen to this. As you really are unleavened. That you might be new as you really are. Why are you unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When you read unleavened, read holy. When you read unleavened, read pure. Read blameless. Read God's pure bride. Unleavened is a symbol for purity. And Paul is saying, you already are that. Because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. See? Notice Paul does not say, if you expel this immoral person, your church will become unleavened. Your church will then become holy. No, he says, your church is holy. She is the bride of Christ already. So live in keeping with what you already are. And this will be again and again what we'll see Paul do in this book and in other books in the New Testament. He calls us to follow Christ, not to earn our identity with Christ, not to win an identity with Christ, but because he's already won it, because he's already made you his bride. He's already married you. You already are holy. You already belong to him. So live like it. And isn't that encouraging this morning? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been, past tense, already sacrificed 
Just like Jake told us this morning. And on that basis, we already are a holy bride. We already are justified, forgiven. Our sins are not on us anymore. We're blameless in God's sight. And it's on that basis, our real and new identity in Christ, that we're called to live a life of obedience and holiness. Not to earn it. Not to get him to like us. Not to get him to accept us. But because he already does. So we must not get that backwards. Not go back to the slavery of legalism and earning. It's such a battle. It's such a battle. We are just hardwired to earn. We are hardwired by Satan to feel accused, to feel condemned, to feel hopeless. We're hardwired to feel self-assured and self-sufficient, to compare ourselves to other people, to feel like we can prove ourselves. Paul says, no, 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 no. You're Christ's bride. Live like it because you are. So then Paul moves into the call for these Christians. What does it mean in this context with this situation to follow Christ? Going to verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So here Paul is trying to correct a serious misunderstanding, which we're going to get into later. But first, let's start with, so he's saying, I'm not saying this, I'm saying this. I'm not saying this, I'm saying this, right? I'm not saying the people of the world, I'm saying the people. Let's talk about what he is saying first, and we'll come back to what he is not saying and the implications of that. I'm not writing to you, verse 11. I'm, I'm, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of these things, dot, 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 dot. Now, if we don't do some work on this, this, this can seem really, really harsh. Don't associate with these people who, who do these things. We know from much of the Bible, the entire Bible, that this command does not have in view brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin and fighting on a daily basis to repent of their sin and to keep walking with Christ. We will never be perfect in this life. We will always battle with sin Our repentance will always be incomplete and imperfect. And Satan would want to paint a picture here of a harsh God throwing people out of the church at the first glance of sin, even at the first glance of serious sin. Now, a few passages later, we'll be able to see in the context that's not what's going on. Because in just a few passages and further sermons to come, Paul will call this church to forbear when they're being injured by each other. They're being sinned against by one another. He's calling them to forbear and to turn the other cheek. And a few passages before this, we read many, many moons ago, Paul warned the church about judging each other, about judging each other's motives when they couldn't see them, as if they could see each other's hearts and being harsh with each other. So Paul is not calling for a community of harsh judging, constant criticism. He is not talking about that. He's talking about serious, habitual, unrepentant, obvious sin. We know from Matthew 18 and many other New Testament, Old Testament texts, even in that case, that we're commanded to walk each other through a careful process, investigation involving multiple appeals, multiple credible witnesses, involving cross-examination, not hearsay, not unsubstantiated accusations and harsh judgments. That's not where Paul's moving to. This command has in view Folks who call themselves followers of Jesus, but who are clearly and obviously giving themselves to willful unrepentance in these ways he will list. 
These are folks who are committed to practicing a lifestyle of these things. And he lists six things. He talks about sexual morality. The Greek word is porneia. And sometimes it's translated adultery. But when you see porneia in the Old Testament or that Greek word in the New Testament, it includes all kinds of sexual immorality, all kinds of sexual activity that's, that's outside of God's design. So it includes premarital sexual uh, intimacy. It includes adultery. It includes same-sex activity. And in our day where pornography is so rampant, this sin is especially dangerous because it's so accessible and so hideable, right? Like this guy was basically in a committed relationship, whether he was married or not, I don't know. But, but he was in a committed relationship with his stepmom and he wasn't hiding it. The church was proud to have him that way. But this is a very hard issue for us because we, we can hide. And so God would call us, don't hide. Bring your battle to the light. If you're stuck in this, bring it to a brother and sister. Help them to help you. Paul lists greed. Literally, this word means the ones who must have more. It's such a crazy transliteration. When we read greedy, they read the ones who must have more. Must have more. People who just always have to have more. It means not just to desire what's not your own, but it often carries the sense of you're carrying through that desire to the point of where you're defrauding or taking advantage of other people. It's really the opposite of being content with what you have. Relatedly, I'm going to go to another word, hop over. He talks about the swindler. And this is a person, this is related to, uh, this is related to greed. This is the person who cheats or defrauds other people. A lot of times it's a financial word. So you think of a Ponzi scheme where an investor might take your money and invest it in, in, in false ways and never really be able to give you the return he's promised you and he knows it the whole time. You might think of an attorney who knows people that they're going after are innocent, but they're going to go after them for all they're worth. And it's just business. You might think about a, a boss who's just, you know, if, if, if you're a Christian and you're a boss who's defrauding your workers of fair wages, God's got you in his sight here. Don't be a swindler. You might think of something more close to home. Billable hours. I remember when I was working in the defense capturing industry, it was just, it was ambiguous sometimes, like whether... We were being encouraged to, to put hours in that were really credible hours. There's a lot of fudgy, fudgy stuff. I remember being told by a coworker that um, I should just keep using this copyrighted material to keep teach to, to train PowerPoint classes. Well, the PowerPoint class teacher said, please don't use this material. And he said, oh, we'll just keep using it. It doesn't matter. Little things like that are serious things to God because it's swindling. It's taking money from others and it, when it doesn't belong to you. And Paul talks about idolatry and this is a good one because you see in 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 colossians 3 5 paul calls greed for money idolatry and this had a literal meaning then for them but most of us have a hard time imagining any of us going and bowing down to a god but it happens in our world and we we, we kind of like take it for granted you know like we, we look at these different cultures we've talked about this before a culture of diversity and we think it's just interesting to look at different countries and their different practices my son john christopher yesterday was looking through a guinness book of world records and as soon as i get home he said dad dad look dad look and i was like what's up john like, you got to tell somebody about this i was like what he turns to the page and he shows me a picture of south north koreans worshiping a statue of of kim ung jun or whatever the guy's name is and they're all bowing down and john was like dad we got to tell people at church that this is going on I mean, his heart was like 
really hurt by this or really affected by it. I mean, I would never have dotted it. Like, I, for a second, I would have glossed through that. But John's heart was affected. He, he understands from the Bible, idolatry is a big deal. And we can translate this, right? Of course, we could get closer to home with it to, to worship of new age beliefs and angel worshiping or speaking to spiritual mediums to talk with the spirits of the deceased. Or, as Colossians does, it translates it into a, the idea of greed, which, which moves into this whole idea of just really when you're putting your hope in a deep way, you're putting your life hope in to something that's not God, that thing becomes an idol. It could be a relationship. It could be recreation. And, and so, you know, I'm not trying to make everybody, like, go through a process of church discipline because right now you're, you're binge-watching a particular show. But, but we just want to be aware that this is a real thing that God cares about, that he cares about what has the central place in our heart, that he wants to take the central place in our heart, that our affections are supposed to be for him first. And if they're not for him first, we're fighting. We're fighting our sin to keep him, to seek him, to be first on the throne of our heart. Right? Which we, we know, we understand that's a constant battle. It's a constant warfare that we have to wage. But that's what God calls us to. Away from idols. Away from putting our ultimate hope in anything, any person, any money, any desire greater than him. We want to pray against that. We want to fight against that. And then Paul moves into reviler. This word reviler is translated in some other Bibles as slanderer. So it's a little bit easier to understand than reviler. But it really covers all forms of verbal abuse. Slandering would be to make false or damaging statements about somebody, to give false testimony that taints somebody's reputation. It can also mean to criticize someone strongly in an ungodly way. Coarse talk like a mob, disorderly crowd or a mob is reviling, gossiping about other people. You know, I, I, I feel like this word just makes me do like a Rolodex look over the past several years of my life. And I think for, for many of the brothers and sisters I've walked through, it's just... It's just, it can become so easy in the name of pursuing holiness to talk about each other's sin and to talk about each other's struggles and to be doing a lot of evaluations with each other. I remember moving from uh, being a new Christian to a Christian working like on a youth staff. And I loved the brothers and sisters on my youth staff. But I remember like we suddenly became much more comfortable talking about the students and talking about their sins, kind of like sizing them up. And at times we would just, you know, roll our eyes about some of the things. And we lost that sense of, I feel like, holiness about talking about another human being. And, and, and that what you say should be seasoned with grace. And you should be saying things that edify and build up. And you shouldn't be speaking. You shouldn't be speaking in, in gossipy ways, in dishonoring ways about other people. In subtle ways and big ways. And, and I think that, you know, I don't know about you guys, but, but I think there's a temptation, particularly for, for Christian leaders, to kind of size up different things. And sometimes you have to talk about serious things that you can get numb to that. But it, probably all of us can get numb to that. Sharing our opinions about other people. And, and I want to grow. You know, I, I, want, I'm, I want my fellow teammates. My wife the other day, in a gracious way, she just said, it sounds like you're grumbling about that situation and that person. <laughs> she just said, it sounds like you're grumbling. And she'd been reading, I think, uh, with CBS, or maybe it was with Donna. Donna, what are you guys doing? Okay, well, it might have been Matthew 5, but it might have been Exodus at CBS. But she just said, God hates grumblers. He kills them. 
she was, ta- she was reading in Exodus where God swallows up grumblers. He just says he kills them. And I mean, it was just like, it was good, man. It was good. I felt cleaner after she said that. And the next time I bumped into that same temptation to say something about somebody or to hear something about somebody, I was, I was resensitized to it. I was resensitized to it. So if you hear me talking to you guys about somebody and you're not sure that I have, I should be talking about them as I should, just ask me, are you sure you should be talking about that person like you are? If you hear somebody else saying some stuff about somebody else and you're not sure that it's edifying or godly or that the other person knows or blah, 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 just stop and say, is this a good conversation we should be having? Hey, we all can struggle with this. You don't have to be self-righteous about it and holier than thou about it. But let's, let's root it out. Let's get rid of slanderous, gossipy talk about each other. I need help with that. You need help with that. Let's do it. A drunkard. This is not about drinking alcohol in moderation. Every single commentator I read was making a big deal. They must have been like studying with a glass of wine in one hand. They're like, this is not about having wine. This is not about having a beer out in the back deck. This is about being a drunk. This is not about the alcoholic who's fighting to stay sober. This is not about the alcoholic who's going to AA meetings, who's falling off the wagon from time to time, but then fighting to get back on. Many of us have dear loved ones who struggle with this kind of sinful addiction, who are fighting it. And what a testimony of God's grace they are. I mean, for me personally, I look back at my family history. I'm grateful for AA. I don't know what else some of my relatives would have had. A person, this person in sight, is, is regularly given to drunkenness, embracing it as a lifestyle. And they're not repentant. They're not fighting. They're not serious about it. So... With these people, Paul says, who are in your fellowship, who call themselves brother, he says, don't associate with them. Don't even eat. What does it mean? Well, I want to be careful before we say what it doesn't mean and turn it down a little bit. There's teeth in this. It should freak us out. It should like, that's the whole point here. Whatever is supposed to happen to this person is supposed to be a really, really cold shower over a long time to wake them up. Second Thessalonians 3 says, in a similar instance about people who were lazy, who weren't taking money without working for it, Paul says, keep away from them. Have nothing to do with them. Talking about this particular person. He says, that he may feel ashamed. That's a very anti-psychological, anti-therapeutic idea. But that's what Paul is saying. He says, warn them as a brother. Don't treat them as an enemy, but warn them. That's how your posture is to be towards them. Why is it like that? I mean, other words are expel them from your midst. Purge them. Get rid of them. Keep away from them. Have nothing to do with them. That they might feel ashamed? Warn them? What is all this stuff? It sounds very judgmental. It sounds very holier than thou. It sounds very scary and uncomfortable. It doesn't sound very seeker-friendly, does it? Well, there's a reason. Because it's not about seekers. We'll hear a very different thing about seekers. Paul says, don't associate with them. That word associate, it, it, it literally means don't mingle with them. Don't mix up with them. Don't have intimate association with them. Close friendship with them. It doesn't mean don't ever speak to them. Don't ever say hello. It doesn't mean they, sh- they could never come into your church to hear the word of God. It certainly does mean they should not be taking communion. And it certainly does mean you shouldn't be going out for a beer or pizza with them as if nothing was wrong. It means that your life posture towards them in the main should be one of warning. 
It should be one of saying to them, something drastically has changed about you. And my life needs to be about saying to you, you are in grave danger. Your profession of faith is in question. The reality of your salvation is not clear anymore. And Jesus does not want you to feel assurance because of how you're living. He wants you to fear that you don't belong to him, perhaps. He wants you to fear that you might be going to hell because he wants you to turn back to him. And he doesn't want you playing with fire. You know, I think about this again with my kids. I was telling this, this was on our phone call with Ryan yesterday. This becomes one of the means that God saves his people who are rebelling against him. Right? And you think of it like your kid. I might have used this analogy before. But they're going to cross the street. Oh my goodness, the time is unreal. We may have to move to part three next week. They're going to cross the street, right? But God's decided from the beginning of time. He's written every day in their, in their, in their, in his book for them. So God knows if on that day they're going to cross the street when a car is coming and get hit, or he knows that they're not. But he's determined that in his sovereignty. But what does he do? He uses mom and dad, right? Because your three-year-old knucklehead kid is like out there in the middle of the street. And mom and dad grab him by the ear and, what are you doing? Don't do that. And so next time he walks out towards the street and mom and dad say, hey, 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 don't. He hears the voice of his dad. He hears the voice of his mom. He remembers how mom pulled his ear and it hurt or gave him a little spanking because he's walking into the street. And he turns back and he walks back. And so from the beginning of time, John was never going to walk across the street and get hit by the car. But the means God used was mom or dad's warning that he heard in his heart that called him back. And so that's what's going on here. That's the whole point of these warnings and don't have association with it. All that stuff. It's clear that they were not to treat them as if they were in fellowship anymore. No meals was a saying, way of saying, you are not in close connection with me. Yes, they were to be warned when appropriate. They were obviously to be prayed for and loved, but there's to be no sense of business as usual. In our parlance, we might say, no potlucks, no Super Bowl parties, no care group meals, no palling around. We are going to have to shut this down. <laughs> it's 11.40. So we're going to get to what, what, I'm going to give you guys a quick preview of what Paul is so so, trying so hard to make them understand, just so you guys don't misunderstand. As Paul's explaining this to them, there's a big misunderstanding. It might be purposeful misunderstanding. We don't know. But in verse 10, he throws this at them. I do not mean the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindler, or the idolaters. That's not what I mean. Whatever you might not be doing with this brother because of his commitment to sin... I'm not saying don't do that with the world. I'm not saying don't do that to the world. You see, don't associate with this person, this person who calls himself a brother, doing these things. And then he says, I'm not talking about people in the world. The implication is close friendship, hanging out, having food together, palling around. with people of the world is not to be forbidden. It's not to be forbidden. It's to be encouraged. 
wisely. Bad company corrupts good morals, Paul will say in another place. Do not be unequally yoked. If that relationship becomes a means of facilitating compromise in your life, we've got to be smart about this. But Paul is saying, we're not about creating a Christian huddle, a holy huddle. Lock ourselves off from the world. No. They were doing everything wrong, this church, in this regard. They were embracing people who call themselves believers who were living in absolute violation, obvious, clear violation of God's will. And they were ostracizing, closing themselves off from people in the world who needed their friendship because they needed the gospel. So this distance, whatever whatever Paul is calling them to mean, does not mean treat them as if they were not a Christian. It doesn't mean that. Do you hear that? Sometimes people will say, treat them as a tax collector or a, a sinner. Means just now treat them as if they were an unbeliever. So do all the things you wanted to do with them before. Just just make sure they know that you think they're an unbeliever or, or don't do Christian-y things with them. No, because Paul is saying, no, don't treat them as if they were an unbeliever. With the unbeliever, associate. Associate with them. Have friendships. Have Super Bowl parties. Invite them to your Bible study, if it makes sense in the context. It doesn't always make sense. But the point is, to this church, what are you doing? You're getting it absolutely backwards. Man. And so we come into this final picture of the church as a light implicitly here. The light of the world, Paul says. You are the light of the world, Matthew 5. A city sit on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, the words of the Lord. Philippians 2, Paul's words. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. Innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst, in the midst, in the midst, among, around, a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast, some translations say, holding forth the word of life. We're going to talk about this more next week. We're going to talk about what it means, implications here, to be a light in the world. We're going to talk about fascinating stuff when Paul says, I'm not calling you to judge the world. I'm calling you to judge yourselves. has a lot of implications for how we talk about our favorite or unfavorite politicians on Facebook. (laughs) Anyway, well, listen, we're going to wrap up. We'll, cut, we'll, we'll focus more on, on light, but remembering the church is a body of Christ to do Christ's work for each other on this earth. The church is a bride of Christ to be pure and holy so that her husband is pleased and ravished with her beauty. And, and we're going to move into this idea that the church is a light, a light to the world.